that um, you can pick your friends, you can't pick your family. That was always a warning to pick your, your friends wisely and strategically. The truth of my testimony is that I have not even been allowed to pick my friends either. <laughs> God has just brought people uh, in my life according to his wise and sweet providence. And I publicly thank God for Pastor Brian and for his personal friendship, for his partnership in the gospel, for this church, and for this conference. And it's a joy uh, to be here with you tonight. If you'd get your copy of God's Word, I want to get right down to business. Amen. I want to point your attention to the final paragraph of Matthew chapter 28. Let's pray first. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the gift of this day and for the privilege of walking today in the assurance of our salvation because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for blessing us to end this day in the house of prayer to worship you in spirit and in truth. We acknowledge that you are already here whether we feel you or not. It is our prayer, however, that you would manifest yourself to us in a life-changing way as your wonderful Holy Spirit makes plain to us and for us the wisdom of your word. Help each of us tonight to lay aside all malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, and slander. So that as newborn infants we may crave the pure and spiritual milk of your word and grow thereby having tasted of your goodness. Grant me physical strength and spiritual energy to speak your word tonight faithfully and clearly. And we know that as we plant and water, only you can give the increase. So we reserve for you in advance the highest praise and full credit for the fruit that shall come from this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Matthew 28, beginning at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. I uh, got a new Bible for Christmas. 
And it's one of those Bibles that have uh, headings over certain sections. And this, the heading over this text just reads, The Great Commission. I don't think we can get a better title than that. I'll label the message tonight, The Great Commission. The end of Matthew chapter 27, Jesus is dead and buried. Thank God that is not how the story ends. Matthew 28 records and reports the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Several women went to the tomb where Jesus was buried to perform proper burial rites on his body, only to be told, verse 6, by an angel, he is not here, for he is risen. The angel also gave the women instructions. They were to tell the disciples of Jesus that he is alive and that he would meet them in Galilee. As they went to carry out these instructions, the women bumped into the risen Savior himself. And he repeated the instructions, telling the women to tell the disciples that he is alive and will meet them in Galilee. After that brief business-like almost report of the resurrection, the rest of this final chapter of Matthew's gospel presents for us, holding them in tension, two responses to the resurrection. Verses 11 through 15 is the unbeliever's response. There we are told that the religious leaders bribed the soldiers to say that while they were sleeping, the disciples came and stole the body of Jesus from the grave. It was a ridiculous lie. But verse 15, Matthew footnotes that this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. But after this unbelieving response, the final paragraph Verses 16 through 20 records the believer's response to the resurrection, closing and climaxing with the instructions of Jesus that we know as the Great Commission. But I think as I read through this chapter in its entirety, that after the resurrection, we are meant to hold these two final stories in tension. There are only... I think Matthew is saying two ways to respond to the resurrection of Jesus. You can, like the religious leaders, stubbornly reject the truth of the resurrection. Or you can, as the instructions of our text give us, you can radically proclaim the truth of the resurrection. May the Lord help us to do the latter. The paragraph picks up in verse 16 by saying that the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain that Jesus had told them. Note, this is the first time the 12 
are called the eleven. There is now just eleven disciples because Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, is no longer counted among them. Matthew 27 verse 5 says he hanged himself. But it is also now 11 because Simon Peter, who denied Jesus, is still in the number. He failed the Lord in a crisis, but his failure was not final. Grace gave Peter another chance. And so the 11 go to some predetermined but unidentified mountainside in Galilee to meet Jesus. Verse 27 says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. What a remarkable statement. As Jesus approached them coming up this grassy hillside in Galilee, the Bible says that the disciples saw him and fell prostrate before him in reverent worship. It is the same way the women respond to the risen Savior when they bump into him along the road in verse 9. They worship Jesus. In this closing chapter, Matthew wants to make it clear that Jesus is more than a wise rabbi or a worker or a zealous revolutionary. He is, as Romans 1, 4 says, he is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness through his resurrection from the dead. He is Jesus Christ the Lord. And he is worthy of our worship. Verse 17 says, as they worship, some doubted. Uh, this, was my, this was my sermon text this past Lord's Day from my own congregation. And I really spent the week reading commentaries trying to explain or explain away this phrase, but some doubted. I won't bother you with the various uh, explanations, I would just commend you to take the words at face value. I appreciate this statement because it is a, another expression of the unapologetic truthfulness of sacred scripture. The, the, the Bible paints a picture of the disciples it gives us a picture of the disciples, as uh, the kids would say, with no filter. It doesn't try to clean them up and make them super spiritual. As they worshiped, they were still in shock that the crucified Savior had risen from the dead. Matthew doesn't spend any time lingering on that reality. The rest of the text is Jesus' response to them. He came to them, 
verse 18, and spoke to them, and he spoke to them what we call the Great Commission. It is not the Great Commission because it is the last command Jesus ever gave. There are commands he gives after this. It is not the Great Commission because it is the most important command, more important than other commands of Jesus. It is the Great Commission because it states for us succinctly the proper response to the resurrection of Jesus. And I just want to remind us of that truth tonight. The risen Savior commissions his disciples to make disciples. I wish I had something deeper for you tonight. But I just want us to go back to the basics tonight. The risen Savior commissions his disciples to make disciples. I want to ask you, what are you doing to fulfill the Great Commission? There are a lot of things to discuss in the church advance conference. There is no greater issue for a local church to wrestle with than this. What are we doing to fulfill the Great Commission? I want you to see in the text, verses 18 through 20, three ways to fulfill the Great Commission. Three ways. We personally, each of us, can be engaged in the work of fulfilling the Great Commission. And we as the local church can be about this work of the Great Commission. First, submit to the authority of Jesus. Submit to the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus is a dominating theme in the Gospel of Matthew. There's a sense in which you can trace the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew through the line of this theme of his authority. After the great sermon he preached on the mount, Matthew 7, 29 says the crowds were astonished because he spoke as one having authority. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 13 record miracles that declare the authority of Jesus over sickness. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, he sends, <laughs> he has so much authority that he could send out his disciples as deputies and give them authority over unclean spirits. And even the crucifixion was an expression of the authority of Jesus at work. In John chapter 10, verse 18, he says concerning his life, I have the authority to lay it down. And the proof that I have authority to lay it down is that when I get ready, I got the authority to pick it up again. So now it is right only right that the, the gospel of Matthew ends climatically with Jesus making a bold claim 
of divine sovereignty. Verse 18 says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Yes, friends, he has power. But the Greek word here is more than power. Power is the ability to get things done. Authority is jurisdiction. It's freedom of action. It's the legal right to use power. Uh, this coming weekend, there are going to be some powerful, talented kids on the football field with great skill, much training, shoe contracts, fan support, sneaker deals, and the little referee, all he got is a whistle. <laughs> but the authority of the whistle, are you hearing me here, can overrule the power of the athlete. And the authority that the referee has in a football game is the authority that Jesus claims over the universe, except no instant replay can overrule Jesus. He says, I have, well, let me just lean into it. Notice the scope of his authority. All. Let me give you that in the Greek, all. <laughs> all means all, and that's all all means. That there is nothing on the other side of all. Last year, I published a new book on worship, and in the editorial process, my editor uh, cited me a chapter addressing the Great Commission. And in that chapter, I said, if Jesus has all authority, no one else has any. And she says, I don't think that's a statement you want to make. You might want to consider revising that sentence. And I sent it back and said, that is absolutely a statement that I want to make, and you should leave it alone. <laughs> if Jesus has all authority, it truly means that ultimately no one else has any. He is in charge of everything. Don't judge that, friends, by the breaking news of the day. You turn on the news tonight when you get in, and it may not look like Jesus has all authority. But don't, don't base how you think about this on what the news says. The proof that Jesus has all authority is that he lived to make this claim. Uh, just go back a couple of chapters and you'll find him betrayed, arrested, beaten, tried, convicted, flogged, and crucified, dead, and buried. Death is the worst thing anyone can do to you. And when they crucified Jesus, they thought they were done with him once and for all. But early Sunday morning, he rose from the dead and declared, I have all authority in my hands. This, friends, is the most, arguably, the most important Christological statement in the New Testament. Jesus unmistakably here is saying, let me paraphrase this for you real simply. Verse 18, let me, let me give it to you out the CIV, the Charles International Version. <laughs> Jesus says in verse 18, let me just paraphrase it very simply, I am God. 
He claims here power of attorney to exercise sovereign authority at his personal discretion. There's no way you can read verse 18 and, and, and come away with some middle ground position of Jesus. Either he is a liar or he is a lunatic or he is Lord of all. But not only note the scope of his authority, note the sphere of his authority. In heaven and on earth. In heaven is, is more than a reference to the heavenly body, sun, moon, and stars. It is a reference to the spirit beings in the unseen realm. He is referring, when he says, I have all authority in heaven, he is saying that, that Michael and his army of angels and Satan and his army of demons all submit to me. That's what Ephesians chapter 1 verses 20 and 21 declares that after God raised up Christ and seated him at his right hand, he he put all things under his feet and seated him high above all rule, authority, and above every name that can be named in this age and in the age to come. But he's not just in charge in heaven. Hold on to your seats. He says, I'm in charge on earth. He doesn't say world. Referring to value system. He, he says, earth. I, I'm in charge over everything on earth. Referring to land and sea and everything that lives in it. Hallelujah. Again, it may not look like it now, but I declare in the language of Philippians chapter 2 verses 10 and 11. That God has highly exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hallelujah. And so we see in verse 18 the scope of his authority, the sphere of his authority. Let me say a word about the source of his authority. This authority, he says, has been given to me. G given to me. Given to me by God the Father. John 3, 35, Jesus says, the Father loves me and has put all things into my hand. Jesus claims the Father has given him plenipotentiary power over all of the created world. I suggest that Matthew 28 verse 18 is the fulfillment of Psalm 2 verse 8. Uh, Psalm 2 8, the Lord says to his anointed son, just ask of me and I will give you the nations as thy inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. 
Jesus says, God has kept that promise to me, and he has given me all authority in heaven and on earth. In the midst of a pagan, hostile audience, Paul had the audacity, Acts 17, 30 and 31, to say that there were times of ignorance about who God really is that he overlooked. But he now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness through one whom he has appointed. And he has given his appointee evidence by raising him from the dead. And so Jesus begins the Great Commission not with a commission but with a claim. This claim is worth us lingering over because, friends, if verse 18 is not true, verses 19 and 20 are meaningless. And so we need to, first of all, submit to the authority of Jesus. But secondly, obey the commands of Jesus. Obey the command of Jesus. Verse 19 begins, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Maybe the key term in that phrase is therefore, which links the claim in verse 18 grammatically, logically, and theologically to the commission in verses 19 and 20. The authority of Jesus is the fuel, the focus, and the foundation of the great commission. He says... Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the, the nations. This commission is, is stated formally in verses 19 and 20. And I just want to walk you through it. What is, the, what is the great commission? May I commend it to you as a threefold command of Jesus. First, Jesus says, make disciples. Make disciples. Verse 19 begins with the word go, go in the original is a participle that modifies the main verb, make disciples. You can read literally here, some argue it should read as you are going, make disciples. But I don't think it's wrong to give that verb, the weight of an imperative. This goal is inserted here to remind us that the church is not a stationary building, a geographic location, or a lifeless institution. The church is a people on the goal for Jesus. Or let me say it another way. We're to be a going church for a coming Christ. For some of us, that call will be to go across the ocean, to live and serve in a foreign land, to advance the gospel message of Jesus Christ. 
for others of us. It will be a call not to go across the nations, but to go across a room to a classmate, to a coworker, and tell them about Jesus in spite of the fear of ridicule and rejection. Jesus says either way it goes, all of us as disciples should be marked by going. And as we are going, he, he says, and this is the singular command in the text, make disciples. As you are going, make disciples. That's the primary calling, the singular mission, the exclusive imperative of the text. Make disciples. That is the mission of the church. The church cannot advance pursuing any other agenda. He has left us here for one purpose, that's to make disciples. A, a, a disciple was a student of a rabbi. It, it was not so much about enrolling in a school as much as it was about committing yourself to a person. A rabbi would take on disciples and the disciples would join themselves to the rabbi. The disciple would be with the rabbi in order to learn from the rabbi, in order to become like the rabbi. And when the disciple finished rabbinical school, uh, he was free to start taking on disciples for themselves. But would you note here, Jesus does not give his disciples permission to open their own rabbinical schools. That's a reminder worth noting get church right, we must remember it's not about us. Disciples of Jesus are to make disciples of Jesus. What does that look like? What does being a disciple look like? I think one of the best descriptions of it is Matthew 11 verse 29 where Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's discipleship. It's following Jesus to learn from Jesus. When a sinner turns from his sin and trusts in Christ Jesus, he becomes a disciple. A disciple believes in Jesus, belongs to Jesus, and becomes like Jesus. And here... As Jesus tells the disciples to make disciples, he is reminding us that no one can be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ on your own. The African proverb says it takes a village to raise a child. Jesus is saying here it takes a whole church to raise a disciple. <laughs> discipleship happens life upon life. Discipleship, one author says in a new book simply addressing the subject of discipleship, he says in simple terms that discipleship is followers of Jesus helping others to follow Jesus. So I just want to ask you tonight, there's a lot of things that we can get caught up in in the life and work of the church. I just want to ask directly, who are you helping to follow Jesus? That's not just for the pastors in the room. 
The Great Commission is not just for pastors and evangelists and missionaries. It is the duty of every Christian to make disciples. May I suggest that if you are, a, are not making a dis, disciples, if you're not making disciples, it may be because you're not really one. Or at best, it means you are a disciple who is disobedient, rebellious, and traitorous to the commands of the Lord Jesus. Jesus says here, faithful disciples make disciples. Who are you helping to follow Jesus? We are to make disciples of all the nations. Back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 6, Jesus gives um, what one commentator calls the limit. His disciples out and tells them, don't go to any Gentile towns, don't go to any Samaritan towns, just go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 10, 6. Only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Here, do you know, in the Great Commission, Jesus rescinds that command and now says, make disciples of all the nations. All the nations means, Lord help, all ethnicities. The gospel condemns white supremacy, black power, and any other race-based agenda. I stand to declare tonight that Jesus is an equal opportunity savior. Glory to God. He, he, he wants disciples of every tribe, nation, people, and language. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says that you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses for me in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the calling on every local church to make disciples to the ends of the earth. It's the unfinished task of the church. Statistics tell us that there are 11,000 different people groups on planet earth today. And further tell us that there are among those 11,000, 6,000 unreached people groups. Unreached people groups means that, that less than 2% of the population has ever heard the gospel of Jesus. When we hear that, friends, may the Lord burden us to remember that the church is not to be a social club for insiders. It's to be a missionary agency for outsiders. The church should 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 not be measured by its seeding capacity, but by its sending capacity. We're to make disciples, but then, secondly, we're to mark disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here we see very clearly that baptism is not some man-made tradition. Jesus commands us to mark his disciples by water baptism 
in the name of the Holy Trinity. We refer to this as an ordinance, not a sacrament. To affirm that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. Baptism has no saving power. But it is the first act of obedience for those who have been saved. We are to be baptizing them. Last year, uh, I, I was invited to lecture and preach at a local church that uh, practices infant baptism. And they asked me to lecture on the Great Commission. And, um, and um, <laughs> my, 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 my young daughter went with me. And uh, when it was time to go downstairs from the hotel room, she, she asked me, so what are you lecturing on this morning, Dad? And I told her. And when I told her, it dawned on me about what was about to happen. And I almost had a panic attack. <laughs> and I She's like, what's that? What's wrong with that? I said, this Presbyterian church just asked this Baptist preacher <laughs> to come teach on the uh, Great Commission. And um, I tried to do so as faithfully as I could without causing a mess for the host pastor to have to clean up after I left. But afterward, there's a brother that walked up to me and says, I've been a member of this church for 12 years faithfully, and every Sunday school teacher I've had in 12 years has had a Ph.D. He said, but all those Ph.D.s I've had as Sunday school teachers, you're the first person I've heard in this church acknowledge that in the Great Commission, Jesus says, make them disciples before you baptize them. <laughs> He's right. We're to make disciples, and then we're to Mark the disciples by water baptism. It is how we go public with our faith. And it is also a baptism here is, is presented not as an argument about the mode of baptism, but as a statement of faith. What do you have to believe about Jesus to be saved? That's the answer, everything. You don't have to know everything about Jesus to be saved. There are those of us in this room that have been walking with them for decades and have so much to learn. But you cannot be saved if you blatantly reject the biblical revelation of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says here, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Do you see what he is doing here? He is equating himself to God the Father. He declares here in no uncertain terms that God is one in essence, three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are co-essential, co-equal, and co-eternal. And he declares that to be baptized is to be identified with the Holy Trinity who is revealed as a triunity in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And note, friends, 
that he says, don't baptize them in the names, plural, but in the singular name. The, the name of the one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But one word further here. He says, make disciples, which means bring them to Jesus, but then baptizing means bring them to the church. You're to reach all people groups, and then individually the them need to be baptized. You need to put your hands on them. And, and, and though the church is not explicitly mentioned here, it is a reminder that there's no such thing as a lone ranger disciple. Hello? Uh, or if I could say it the way I, I, I like to say it. Church is the body of Christ. Christ is the head of the church. And Christ does not have out-of-body experiences. You, you can't be in good fellowship with the head if you are not hooked up to the body. But is that not what Galatians 3, 27 to 28 tells us? That as many as been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And there's no... Jew or Greek, male or female, bond or free, but we are what? One in Christ Jesus. So we're to make disciples, mark disciples, and then mature disciples. Verse 20 tells us that you cannot, discipleship does not allow you to make a profession of faith and then go back to your pre-Christian lifestyle. He says, you're to be teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That is where true assurance of salvation is found. Not merely by walking out, not merely even by getting baptized. Jesus says in John 8, 31 and 32, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciple. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The evidence of genuine conversion is a life of obedience. And thus, to make disciples, the church must be committed to biblical and practical teaching. We must, on one hand, be committed to biblical teaching. A disciple-making church is a Bible-teaching church. Singing is important. Programs have their place. Service is necessary, but none of those things make disciples. Spiritual transformation requires biblical teaching. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is inspired or breathed out by God, and it is thus profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training or instruction in righteousness. If the church is going to make disciples, the church must be an unapologetically teaching church. Hallelujah. Brother Pastor, praise God. When we get to heaven, we'll all be out of a job. Won't be any need for preachers in heaven. We'll all just be one bit quiet, singing the praise of God for all eternity. But until then, while we are the church militant, we cannot help people find the road to heaven just by inspirational singing. Somebody has to teach the word. And we are reminded here, 
teach all that I have commanded. If there's anything worse than a church that doesn't teach the Bible is a church that only teaches the Bible selectively. He says, you got to teach them all that I have commanded. You don't get to cherry pick what you think is true, what you think is palatable, what you think is acceptable. He's reminding us that, that the word of God is not, a, is not a cafeteria where you select what you want and leave the rest behind. The word of God is Big Mama's house where you eat what she cooked or you don't eat anything at all. In Acts chapter 20, verses 26 and 27, Paul says to the Ephesian elders in his farewell address that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Let me paraphrase that for you. If you all die and go to hell, it ain't my fault. I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Your blood is not on my hands because I did not hesitate to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. There must be biblical teaching, but not only biblical teaching, there must be practical teaching. Moody said it well that the Bible was not given for our information, but for our transformation. We live, we learn the truth so that we might live the truth. We're to teach them to observe, to keep, to guard, to do, to obey all that he has commanded. A disciple of Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus is to be obedient to Jesus. Luke 6, 46, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and won't do what I tell you to do? There are some who would argue, would suggest, would teach that uh, you can receive Jesus as Savior, and if you decide somewhere down the road, you can accept him as Lord. Okay. Well, Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friends, he was Lord before you got here and will be Lord after you leave here. You don't get to vote on his Lordship. He who saves is Lord of all. And true discipleship is obedience to him personally, practically, and pervasively. I've been up here longer than I wanted to be, but permit me just to say a word about verse 20, the latter part. It's the third way that we can be engaged in fulfilling the Great Commission. Submit to the authority of Jesus. Obey the command of Jesus. I want to say to some weary ministers tonight, Believe the assurance of Jesus. Verse 20 ends by saying, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Friends, playing church is convenient. Making disciples is dangerous. Jesus ends this mission statement by saying, I want you to know you're not in it by yourself. Matthew 1, begins this gospel by declaring that, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, 
and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now the gospel ends with that very person, Emmanuel, declaring, Behold, I am with you always. It is the third claim of deity in these three verses. Verse 18 says, I have all power. Verse 19 says, I am equal to the Father and the Holy Spirit. And now he claims omnipresence. I am with you always to the end of the age. Don't check out on me yet. You, you, need, to, you need this reminder. There are people who will tell you, I'm, I'm with you. I'll be with you. And it doesn't take much for people to change their minds about you. Oh, but friend, Matthew 28, 20 is not a fickle promise. It's a divine assurance. Listen, Jesus does not promise, I will be with you. He assures them, I am with you. And I is emphatic. I, even I, am with you. Um, aren't, you aren't you glad he didn't say go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them, teach them, and y'all just try to be there for each other. <laughs> That's not what he says. He says even when you can't count on one another, I am with you. This is the Old Testament way Scripture would speak to speak of God being on someone's side. For instance, Isaiah 41 verse 10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Jesus says, I am with you always. Literally, the Greek word here is all the days. It's the fourth inclusive statement in the Great Commission. I have all authority. I want you to make disciples of all the nations. I want you to teach them all I've commanded you. And while you're doing that, I'm with you all the days. Even to the end of the age. Uh, The age began at the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus. The age will end at the second coming. Only Jesus can talk this way. I'm about to leave and I'll be back one day, but until I get back, I am with you. (laughs) Even to the end of the age. He is with you. Personally, Powerfully, presently, 
perpetually, permanently. I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Would you uh, stand with me? Can I, can I close in just leading us in a moment of prayer? Do you mind that? Would you stand with me for just a moment? If you don't know the name of the person standing to your left or right, would you just ask that person's name? We will pray for each other tonight. And let's just pray these verses for one another. That we will submit to the authority of Jesus no matter what. That we will obey the command of Jesus no matter what. That we will believe the assurance of Jesus no matter what. Come on, take a moment. Don't wait for me. Let's pray for each other. Tonight.